Thank you for joining me for this Advent teaching from Pennington AG Church. We are into our second to last teaching on the character of Jesus, most clearly revealed by Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, where he refers to himself as both gentle and lowly. Our final sermon will be on Christmas Eve. I invite you to join us and watch that series with us online or join us in person here at Pennington AG Church at 5.30 for our Christmas Eve service. Today I want to talk about the character of Christ Jesus seen in a tender friend, a tender friendship that he offers to us walking side by side by his character and his desire for relationship with each of us. And I want to start with a weird Advent Christmas passage to use from the end of the Gospel of John. Jesus, at the end of his earthly ministry, he's already resurrected. It is my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. As Jesus finishes out his time on earth and John finishes his story about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, God on earth, Christ Jesus the King, with a long chapter about Jesus having a breakfast picnic with his friends by the Sea of Galilee. If you're unfamiliar, the chapter begins with Jesus' disciples going back to work, and there's a mishmash of them. Some that remained faithful to Jesus, some that abandoned Jesus, others somewhere in between. They've already seen the resurrected Jesus and know that he rose from the dead, but they still are not quite sure what they're going to do with their lives, and some are still obviously racked with guilt. So they just go back to doing what dudes do. They're just back at work, and they're fishing, out in the water, working together, and Jesus appears at the side of the sea. He performs a miracle, multiplies their fish. There's a moment where they recognize that it's Jesus, and one of them, who's particularly racked by guilt, dives into the water, swims towards Jesus. In this moment, Peter, the guilty one, and Jesus have a very intimate back and forth around a fire while eating breakfast as Jesus restores him back into ministry and relationship. He forgives Peter and also at the same time reminds Peter to stop being so focused on his own grief and guilt and get back to loving other people. The story then ends with Jesus' disciples kind of arguing about who he loves more to where he says, that question doesn't matter. Enjoy my presence right now. It is a beautiful story to end a dramatic, powerful story about sin and death, resurrection and new life with a quiet, intimate story about friendship. Richard Godbeer, professor of history at Virginia Commonwealth University, wrote a book about friendship and particularly male friendship as seen in scripture. And one of the things he says to us is even just a hundred years ago, the view of men together had such a greater intimacy than we allow today. Even relationships in general, it was okay to hug one another, kiss each other on the cheek, express deep affection and love for another human being. There's something significant about a friend in a way that family is different. Family, we're kind of stuck with each other, right? Family, we know there's a lot of similarities from where we come from, our family of origin, ethnicity, all of that plays into being family. Friendship, we choose that person. 
We choose them because we like them. We choose them because we see something in them worth valuing. We choose them because maybe they see something in us worth valuing. I remember a few years ago, I received a Facebook message from an older male friend of mine. And I could only see the beginning of the message. And all it said from him, and I got it really early in the morning because he was an early riser. I am not. And all it said was, I love you. And I had this brief moment of panic attack where I was like, oh my gosh, what's happening in this relationship? Am I about to be freaked out or weirded out by what he's expressing to me? Is this relationship taking a turn that I don't want it to? What's happening? I opened the message and see that in it he linked to a blog post about male friendship, specifically about how in the Bible, men were closer, more intimate, and expressed their affection to each other. And in the body of the message, he said, I just want you to know that I love you and care about you. Your friendship and who you are is important to me. And I know that we don't say this to each other often enough, so I want to put this in writing and remind you that I love you. Beautiful moment of being taught by him as I was often, but also my own reaction in it, that my first thought was misunderstanding, confusion, wariness about another person so openly and vulnerably expressing affection. This is a aspect of Jesus Christ that we often greatly devalue in our walk with Jesus. We see in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, this intimacy expressed by Jesus, actually by criticism of his ministry. Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, only a few verses earlier than our root passage in this series, but it says, The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners, but wisdom is shown to be right by its results. This is a passage where the ones criticizing Jesus, criticize him for being too intimate, too friendly, too celebratory with people considered unworthy or unrighteous. They're also criticizing John who came before Jesus for being too separated and too holy. Basically, they can't be pleased by anything and they're just trying to find things to complain about. But in Jesus, they're complaining he's too good of a friend to people who don't deserve it. He's too caring and loving to people who haven't earned it. What does it mean that Jesus Christ is a friend to sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes? At the very least, it means that he enjoyed spending time with them. It also means that they felt welcome and comfortable in his presence. In Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it describes this relationship in a bit more detail. The author Luke records this about Jesus. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. The ones Jesus had been accused of being too close with, we now see that they're pressing into his presence. They're seeking him out. They're drawing into who he is. They're crowding him and seeking him out. We have stories of them filling homes where he's teaching, finding him, reaching out to him, touching him. They are drawn to his presence. The ones who normally don't feel accepted because their lives aren't worthy of intimacy, love, and value are the ones who are drawn to the presence of Jesus. What we see throughout the pages of Jesus' life as recorded in the scriptures 
is that those we may consider unworthy or bad friends and bad influences, they felt comfortable and attracted to the presence of Jesus. They were at ease around him. And that his presence, and oftentimes actively, he was pulling them close into relationship with him. Consider your relational circle. Think about it by concentric circles. On the outside, you have people you just barely know. You barely know their names. You're friends with them in social media, but that's about it. Maybe they wish you happy birthday and you're like, who is this? And people we barely know. The next level are people we would call our friends, but we wouldn't probably hang out with them one-on-one. Like a friend group is good if there's three of us in the room, but the friend that connects us leaves. It's really awkward as we're sitting there on the couch. What do I talk to about this guy? And then the intimate center circle, your close friends, the ones you would say know you best and the ones who you genuinely love spending time with. It's never a burden. It's always enjoyable being around them. They just get me. And you have both expressed to each other vulnerabilities where you understand and see each other. Some of us don't have that person or maybe not the ideal version of what we'd like that person to be like. We don't have anyone that we can be truly open to. We're afraid they will let us down. They'll judge us, hurt us. And so there's a reality that many of us don't feel like we have another living person we can be truly and deeply ourselves with, vulnerable with. For some of us, even our best friends that we are close with and have known for decades, there are still parts of us we hold internally because I don't know how they would react to that. For many of us, maybe even in our marriages with our spouse, there are just one thoughts to the left or one memories here, one dream that we feel like they wouldn't really accept. Maybe they would judge us for it or maybe they would use it to hurt us or maybe they just wouldn't understand. And so we still have this separation. In Jesus Christ, we are given the opportunity of a friend that is searching us out who will always enjoy rather than refuse our presence. God, in Christ Jesus, has put on flesh so that he could invite us into his presence and desire us to reveal who we are to him. What if you had a friend at the center of your bullseye, your relational center, whom you know would never raise an eyebrow when you share the worst part of yourself? What if you had a friend with no limit to how many times you could let them down, you could betray them, you could ghost them, you could hurt them, they still would keep coming back and offer forgiveness? If you had a friend where there was no ceiling on what they would put up with, and they would still tenderly love you and guide you to be the best version of yourself. How would that feel and what does that look like? This is what Christ Jesus is calling us to. In Jesus, again, he is reminding us not just of who he is, but who he's always been as God. In Psalm 23, we get a picture of this good friend. We call it the Good Shepherd passage or Psalm, Psalm 23. Psalm 23 verses 5 and 6 point to an image of the friendship God wants to have with us. It says, 
You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. The image of a friend who prepares the table, who invites us in to celebrate, to eat with, to share laughter and memory and life with. And then a friend whose home we can stay in forever. The image of the cup here is intentional. The cup overflowing poetic language that means if I'm at your home and my cup is empty, it's a subtle or not so subtle sign, it's time to go. You didn't offer me a third coffee? All right, it's 11 o'clock, I'm gonna get out of here. I remember hosting men's events in my home, Monday night football, and those games start late and end even later, sometimes midnight or after midnight. And I remember some of the guys hanging out in my house after midnight when I clearly want to go to bed and I'm doing not so subtle signs of cleaning up around them. I remember vacuuming and bumping the vacuum into the foot of a guy where I'm like, hey, subtle sign, time to get out of here. At one point I left, I walked, just, you, gotta, you just gotta go, just get out, I'm going to sleep. What God is presenting to us and what Christ Jesus offers us is a friend that's never going to vacuum around us, a friend who will continually refill our cup and invite us into his home forever. Our presence is always welcome with the friend we know in Christ Jesus. Revelation chapter 3, now we're looking ahead, points to this character of Jesus. There it says to a group of Christians who are understood as wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, in verse 17, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him, eat with him, and he with me. That the friend in Christ Jesus is searching us out, is knocking at our door, is desiring relationship with us. And not just with the righteous best version of us, but with the wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked version of us. The one we're afraid our friends might reject if they knew about us. The one we're afraid our spouse might be angry if they saw our mind or heart. Jesus Christ is knocking on the door of that version of our heart to come in, spend time with us, and offer his loving acceptance. This isn't just a one-way street either. It's not just Jesus Christ coming for us, but it is also a mutual friendship, a two-way street, where as much as Jesus wants to bring his presence to us, he wants our presence in and with him. I spent a long time uh, trying to find the best word for it. The word I want to use probably is the best one. Uncomfortable at times in the presence of my own father, when I was a teenager and going into college. Not because of anything my, who my dad is, but because of myself. I am a talker, and I like noise and volume and conversation and music. My father is much quieter and more patient than I am. And I remember times during college where I would literally be planning out things to talk with my dad about on longer drives so there weren't lulls in the conversation. And I'd be, what do, you, what do you think about this movie? Or I just saw this show. Or I'm planning to go here this weekend. Or what did you guys do last week? And I'd have all these conversation starters so it wasn't these moments sitting in awkward silence. 
And it was really only about a year after my graduation from college that in one moment of a long drive with my father, I ran out of things to say. And I sat there in silence and sat there in silence and slowly gained a sense of peace. That the mutual intimacy we had with each other could just be sitting in each other's presence, could just be enjoying silence together, knowing that we're in this together. It doesn't have to be distraction or conversation or something productive, but merely to know that we enjoyed each other's presence. John chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, and by extent to each of us, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Jesus invites us to know him, to step into presence with him, and by extension, to know our creator, to know the one who made us and breathed life into us. Jesus holds nothing back. He comes to us fully exposed, fully who he is, vulnerable and open before us and invites us to come and know all of who he is. The heart of Jesus not only heals our feelings of rejection by his embrace, and not only corrects our sense of harshness by his gentleness, and not only changes our assumption of his distance and aloofness into an awareness of his sympathy, but it heals our sense of aloneness by his offer of friendship, that he will always be with us and he will never leave us or forsake us. At this point, I want to make clear that Jesus is a king. He's not just a buddy friend that we laugh and make inappropriate jokes with. He is the king of the universe who rules over all that's created and deserves glory and honor and praise. And this is what makes it so beautiful and wonderful, that he steps down out of that throne in order to meet us eye to eye and invite us into friendship with him. The point is, that he is with us, as one of us, sharing in our life and experience, and the love and comfort that are mutually enjoyed by friends are likewise enjoyed between Jesus Christ and us. In short, our God relates to us as a person. Jesus is not the idea of friendship abstractly. He is a friend, closer than a brother. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is your only friend or should be your only friend and you should move into a cave and in isolation meditate on just Jesus as your only friend. And maybe you grew up and you ran in the youth group circles and you had that kind of odd person who said, I'm engaged. And you're like, what does that mean? They go, to Jesus, he's my one and only. And you're like, all right, weirdo. I'm not encouraging you to be this person because we're made for relationship with other human beings. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, it says that it's not good for man to be alone with just God, that he needs other people around him. We're made for multiple relationships, other humans to be around us. But having Jesus at the center of our friendship circle means we can take a lot of undue pressure off of our friends. 
take a lot of pressure off of them to fulfill us and give our lives meaning, to save us, fix us. It takes that burden off of them and it takes the burden off of us to be someone else's savior, to be that perfect friend. Jesus will never fail. Jesus can penetrate your loneliness by knowing who you truly are. Jesus can sympathize with your pain because he felt all of human pain and suffering on the cross. And Jesus doesn't run out of patience as our human friends often do. When I was a youth pastor, I would have advice sessions for those graduating and going to college. We'd do it during the summer between their senior year and their first year of college. And we would give them advice, spiritual advice, but also practical advice for going into college. And one of the pieces I would always give is that the first week of college, you're going to be very stressed about making friends and wanting people to like you. You're going to be constantly insecure in your head. Does this person really like me? Do they want to spend time with me? Are they going to be friends with me next week, weeks after, months to come? What's happening? Am I cool? And I would tell them that same insecurity in your mind is the exact same insecurity they have in their mind and that person has in their mind. You're all trying to project this image of coolness, but all of you are just scared people shivering inside wanting someone to love you. That is the standard approach of making new friends. That just is, always has been. The danger of that mentality is if we continue that for all of our life. You may know people like this. They're sometimes difficult to be around. We think of them as insecure people. It's when we want relationships, friendships with others to fulfill our emptiness and the insecurity that we feel. That I want a friend who will make me feel like my life has value. I want a boyfriend or a girlfriend who gives my life meaning or significance, who makes me feel strong or makes me feel confident or safe. I want a spouse that makes me feel better about myself, makes me feel more complete in who we are. God forbid we become those parents who birth children so that they give our lives meaning and make us feel cool or successful by living vicariously through them. We know those people. Often we are those people. But we can become secure people who enter into relationships not looking for love and value, but to enter into relationships full of love and value because Christ Jesus is there continually reminding us that he is the best friend that we ever will have, that he is God our maker who sees us and loves us and sees value in us and will be with us and will be consistently, patiently with us for all time. And so I can seek out friends knowing that I am worthy of love because my creator loves me in Christ Jesus. And I can seek out a relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend and I can choose to want to love them and show them they are important and beautiful because I know in me Christ Jesus has told me of my beauty and worth. I can invest in my spouse and love them and expect them to be the best version of themselves because of how I support them and give to them because I know I am given all in Christ Jesus and loved by him. And finally, that we can be parents who love our children from the self-confidence of knowing our maker and knowing our value 
and we can believe in our children, love our children, and guide them to be confident adults who have a relationship with Christ Jesus and know their maker and find value from him and not their future spouse or friend group or their freshman dorm in college. It is why Jesus is so attractional. And it's why we're attracted to anybody. We are attracted to self-confident people, people who know that they are loved and their own value because they can pour that back out onto us. People are attracted to Jesus because he is overflowing with love and value and relationship with the Father. And he offers that same confidence, that same love and value to each of us. He says, I can be that friend to you. I can be that one who embraces you, loves you, and tells you you are worthy because of my love, grace, and mercy. As we finish talking about Jesus as friend, I want to bring this higher into theology again. What is the chief end of man? What is our purpose and goal? It's to befriend our creator to be in his presence and to be overwhelmed by his goodness and to share that goodness with others because we are so overwhelmed and impressed with how he loves and cares and how merciful he is. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with this phrase. It was created in the 17th century by Puritans in Scotland as a means to teach children. It's over a hundred questions and answers for kids for them to learn the depths of theology and orthodoxy. It was a pattern of the church for hundreds of years. We would memorize the Lord's Prayer. We would memorize the Ten Commandments. Some would even memorize the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And so in the 17th century, after the Reformation, Martin Luther, they wanted to add to this and clarify some language. And so they come up with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it's a teaching of Christian theology built on questions and answers. Breaks down like this. The first 12 questions are about God as creator. Next, 13 through 20 deal with original sin and the fallen state of man and nature. Questions 21 through 38 concern Christ the Redeemer and the benefits of his redemption. Questions 39 through 84 discuss the Ten Commandments. That's a really long section on the Ten Commandments. Questions 85 through 97 teach the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion. And then finally, the questions 98 through 107 teach and explain the Lord's Prayer. But the most famous part of the Westminster Catechism is literally the first question. The first question that goes like this. What is the chief end of of man. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. There are 106 other questions about doctrine and theology of who God is, what Christ means, how his spirit works among us, how the church is to operate. But it starts from understanding that our purpose, our goal, the meaning of our life is to enter into friendship with our creator. And by that friendship, to be overwhelmingly sharing about the goodness of who he is. If you've spent enough time with me, then you know the stories of my friends, the crazy adventures we go on, the inside jokes that we share. I've shared with you the quirks that make them the beautiful people that I love and love spending time with. 
To enjoy someone is to have that relationship overflow out of you. To have your stories together become your stories you share to others. To have the character of who they are become the character you value and share with others. And as we discover the deeper character of God in Christ Jesus, it naturally pours out of us. The chief aim of man is to glorify God and to enjoy his presence forever. I might reverse that, is to enjoy the presence of God forever in Christ Jesus and by that friendship to give him glory. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, there are 11 instances of Jesus having a meal with someone. That's a lot in a few chapters about a life sent around him being the Messiah and salvation and coming to set men free. 11 instances and stories of Jesus eating around a dinner table, a supper table, a breakfast table with his friends. 11 times. In fact, most famously, in Luke chapter 22 is recorded the beginning of the Last Supper, or the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper with his disciples, his Passover meal, before he goes to the cross, dies, and is resurrected. Let's read the beginning of this meal. Jesus says, When the time had come, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. That Jesus Christ calls us to the table to be his friend. And that at the table, it should be us saying to Jesus, I am so eager to get to know you. I am so excited to spend time with you. I am so overwhelmed that you want to be with me. But instead, it's Jesus saying to us, I have been so eager to spend this time with you. I have been so eager to share life with you. I have been so eager to be your friend that I could know you and that you could know the goodness of who I am. In the 11 stories of Jesus eating with his friends and his disciples, the Last Supper isn't even the Last Supper. It's not the last recording in Luke of Jesus eating. There are three more times that Jesus eats with his disciples, three times after his death. He resurrects and comes back and he gets back to eating and gets back to relationship with his disciples. He eats a meal with the two disciples after the road to Emmaus. He eats a meal in Jerusalem with his disciples after he reveals himself to them. And then he eats after the miraculous catch of fish by the Sea of Galilee, the version that John records in John 21. After the resurrection, Jesus gets back to doing what he wanted to do all along spend time with his image bearers, spend time with his created beings, spend time with his friends whom he loves. This Christmas season, this Advent, we are going to spend a lot of time with friends and family around dinner tables, around breakfast tables, around Christmas trees, outside taking walks, ice skating, laughter together during this holiday season we will see the value of human relationships. In this time, be reminded that that same desire for relationship is the desire our God has for each and every one of us. So much so that he put on flesh to live among us, to take on our sin and death onto his own body on the cross, to die for our suffering and shame, be buried in the ground, 
and resurrected to conquer death itself so that he could have relationship with us, so that we could be his friends. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to pray with me today. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I'll give you a chance to pray this for the first time, just to invite that friendship to be a part of your life. If you are a follower of Jesus, I'll invite you to pray this along with me and recommit to this friendship, to this intimacy, to the joy of knowing Christ Jesus. God, in this moment, I want a friendship with you. I want to know you like an intimate friend and I want to be known by you as only you can know me, the full depth of who I am, my own brokenness, sin, shame, and fears, to be known by you and to know, as your scriptures have said, that you will love me the same. Jesus, I do believe that you came to this earth and you lived as human and God together, that you loved and cared and spent time with your people, that you took my sin and shame on yourself on the cross, you died in my place, and you rose from the grave by your righteous power, and that you sit at the right hand of the Father, you rule and reign and desire still today to be my friend, to know me and to be known by me. Jesus, you gave your life to know me. May I commit the rest of my life to know you and to be filled by your loving presence. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. I invite you to join us this Christmas Eve, this Advent season, as we celebrate that our God has come for us and to be with us in the character of Christ Jesus. You can join us in person at 530 here at Pennington AG Church, or you can join us online to celebrate this Advent season.